You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So the crucifixion of Jesus is the central event in all of history. The crucifixion is the central event in all of history. Everything that precedes it leads up to it. Everything that happens after proceeds from it. That is true in history, and that is true in Scripture. The crucifixion is the central event in all of history. Now, I, having been a church planter and a pastor and having been in professional ministry for about 35 years, um, and having been here for a couple of years, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I feel like every Sunday that, that Shannon and I have been here uh, at Mercy's Door that we have been well fed, uh, that we get a solid meal of the gospel each and every week, and then we get to partake of communion. We have good fellowship, and it's just it's a hearty meal, and, and I think we have, we have grown so much. Um, and and that, is, that is awesome. So I feel like because of the teaching that we get here, that most of us, if you've been at, at Mercy's Door for any length of time, that you uh, have heard the gospel from Scripture, the real good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ, and that you are applying it to your life. So I, I uh, would say that that's true of me and it's probably true of you, right? So if you've been here, you've been fed and you're growing. However, uh, based on my experience in professional ministry, I also believe that there are always people present who don't understand the gospel, uh, who don't understand the basic terminology that we use about justification or sanctification or believe the gospel. What does gospel mean? Or the crucifixion, all this kind of stuff. So I just want to say that uh, if, if it seems like I'm being too basic and elementary and you're like, oh man, I learned that you know, in third grade or I learned that at children's church or whatever, I get it. I totally get it. But I'm also preaching to those who have little to no understanding of what the gospel really is, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back, and I'll say, right, the crucifixion, Jesus Christ on the cross, is the central event in all of history. So it behooves all of us, beginner, veteran, to understand what's going on. So I'm going to take it all the way back to Genesis. Now relax, I've got my timer on, I'm not going to go past... 70 minutes, okay? So I did, I, I actually left in uh, September of 2001, I left my church in Utah, and I went, and I went up to Chicago uh, and, uh, and ran the marathon up there, and in the meantime, my worship leader preached, and his message was 70 minutes, so that, that's why I say 70 minutes. Adam, I know you're listening online, I'm not going to go 70 minutes, okay? I promise. Um, but I, I do want to go back uh, to the beginning, so in, in Genesis chapter 1, you're familiar with this, at least the creation accounts, right? That, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes through all creation accounts, and then he creates Adam and Eve. Uh, and they're in perfect relationship with God. And, and this is important to understand. So they have, uh, they're really living before the face of God. So they have a, an unbroken relationship with God. But they're tempted by Satan in the form of the serpent to go their own way. Right? And they turned their back on God. The God who created them, to be in relationship with Him, they turned their back on God. So a lot of times I think that we think of sin 
as breaking the rules? Yeah, okay. But it is fundamentally breaking the relationship, okay? Between us and our Creator God. We're designed to be in relationship with God. So our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke that relationship and decided to go their own way. Now, theologically, without getting into too much detail and going too long, what we learn from the rest of Scripture is that you and I inherit the penalty of that going their own way. That it wasn't just Adam and Eve, but that they were representative of us for all of humanity that would follow in their wake. And so we inherit that nature that wants to turn our backs on God and go our own way. They endured spiritual death. We inherit that from them. But God in His grace and God in His mercy doesn't physically kill them. And while they're estranged from God, He makes a way for Him to continue to relate to them. It's strained. It's complicated. But God makes a way. God stoops down and makes a way. And and there are... I would say you can see, even there in the early part, in Genesis chapter 3 when this happens, when our first parents turn their backs on God, you see that God pronounces curses. It was like, cursed are you for listening to your wife. That's not exactly what he says. For listening to your wife and eating the the thing, but it's more fun to say. Anyway, uh, and and to the woman, uh, cursed are you. And he pronounces, he curses. He curses the land. He curses the relationships. He he talks about the strain that's going to happen between Adam and Eve and everything. And it's not hard for us to look out in the world and see that this is a fallen, broken world. Well, the origin of that is in Genesis chapter 3. That's the fall. That's the result, is that we live in a broken world and we suffer broken relationships with each other, but also with God. But God in His mercy and His grace provides a way. Now, uh, moving forward just a little bit, uh, God is going to cast them out of the garden. And and if you look in Genesis chapter 3, and you you can look later uh, if you want, but God says, look, now that they've taken from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Uh, we're going to cast them out of the garden lest they become uh, like us. Uh, lest, they, lest they eat of the... the uh, and, uh, uh, so he cast them out of the garden. Uh, and um, he cast them away from the presence of the tree of life. Now, the tree of life makes its appearance in Genesis from the very first part. Do you know where else the tree of life makes its appearance? In Revelation chapter 22, the very first book of the Bible and the very last book of the Bible. From the beginning, where our first parents are cast away from the tree of life, to the very end, Revelation chapter 22, where they are restored to, we are restored to being in the presence of the tree of life. From Genesis to Revelation, the central event is the cross of Jesus Christ. All right, so let me get a little bit more elementary and say this. We inherit the sinful nature of our parents. We live in a broken world. But God in His mercy makes a way. And even in the curse, the curse is pronounced in Genesis chapter 3, there's a promise. 
You remember this? It's sometimes called the first gospel. And it pronounces the curses and it says, but you know what? The seed of the woman is talking about the descendant of Adam and Eve. Satan is going to bruise his heel. That's a, that's a serious wound. But that the seed of Adam and Eve is going to, you remember this? Crush your head. That is the death blow. God promises early on, right after the fall, right after our first parents turn their backs and says, okay, this is bad, but one day everything is going to be made right, and it's going to be made right through one of your descendants, Adam and Eve. Okay, that is the first gospel. And over the course of time, this promise of Genesis chapter 3 is expressed in, I would say, covenantal language, relationship language kind of contractual relationship language. And it's expressed in covenantal language and behaviors. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So um, God, it, it, the, I, I love the Old Testament, but it is, it is weird as, as heck or whatever. So if you want to go back and read it, that's fine. I'm going to go to, I'm going to skip forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abram, right? Who later he renames Abraham, right? God calls Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And Abram, through, all, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed as well. And if you don't remember, Abram is 100 years old and has no children. And yet God miraculously provides to him and his wife Sarah a child. And through Abram and Sarah, it's not just a child, it's multiple descendants who eventually become the people of Israel. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and everything. Well, as big as that family has become, and as much as they have increased, at a certain point, and you could read about this uh, at the end of uh, Genesis and then the start of Exodus, you'll know this story. In Exodus, what we find is tens of thousands of Israelites, descendants of Adam, uh, excuse me, descendants of Abraham and Sarah, are now in bondage in Egypt, right? If you've seen the animated show, The Prince of Egypt, if you've seen the old, for those of us uh, old curmudgeon, you've seen the old uh, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments kind of thing, you understand what happens. That they increase. They go there because of famine in Israel. They go to Egypt, and they increase in number, and then Pharaoh goes, hey, wait a minute, these people are getting a little bit uh, too big and too mighty, so he puts them in bondage for 400 years. Okay, but in that, you remember the story that he raises up Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, let my people go. Free my people. And God pronounces these plagues on Egypt. Right, you tracking with the story? Uh, and God pronounces these plagues. And the final one is the plague of the death of the firstborn. Okay, God is going to smite the firstborn. And the only way to protect against God's wrath is what? Take a lamb, and you slaughter it, and you put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, and God will pass over you and your household. That's an example of a way that God in His grace and mercy makes a way for us to be in relationship with Him, us to avoid His wrath. And it's at the Passover, okay, in uh, Exodus chapter 12. And that's why 
when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist, his cousin, sees him in the distance, remember what John says? John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, you know that thing that we've been celebrating all these years of the Passover when we take the blood of the Lamb, we put over our adults, and we're rescued from God's wrath? Jesus. He points to Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why Peter, later on, after he's failed and after he's abandoned Jesus, and later on he gets restored to ministry, and Peter is writing letters to the churches and people undergoing persecution, he says, Behold, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. God is presenting us with these images about what it takes for us to be restored to relationship with Him. Soon after Exodus, God brings His people out of Egypt. And He again establishes a relationship and He establishes these, I'd say, guidelines. Uh, And He's explaining to the people how can a sinful people interact with a holy God. And then we have the development of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay, This is going somewhere, I promise. And one of the most prominent of those is what's called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. See, in that day, God is saying to His people, I love you, I am your God, you're my people, but you cannot come into my presence any old way. You need a sacrifice in order to come into my presence. Okay? And on the Day of Atonement, this is, this is really intense if you go back into uh, Leviticus chapter 16 and you read it. Uh, God had raised up these ministers, uh, these, these priests, and the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, there would be, have, have to be all kinds of animal sacrifices that were made, and the blood of these animal sacrifices were sprinkled uh, in the Holy of Holies, you know, in the tabernacle, uh, and then they'd have to make a sacrifice. Uh, there are all kinds of things going on, and blood is sprinkled, and, and it was to show that you need a sacrifice. You can't come to God any old way. But there was this other thing that would happen was that a goat would be sacrificed and its blood would be sprinkled, but then the priest would take another goat called the scapegoat, and the priest would symbolically put his hand on the head of the scapegoat and pronounce the sins of the people and symbolically transfer the sins of the people to the goat and then send the goat out into the wilderness to die. And that was representative of what needed to happen. That your sins needed to be dealt with. That God was going to judge sin. God does judge sin because He is just. And yet God provided a substitute, pronounced sins on the substitute, and then sent the substitute away to perish. But here's the deal. That these sacrifices had to be offered day after day, week after week, year after year, until Jesus comes along. Until Jesus comes along, and He is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. I love the way that Tim Keller describes it. He talks about the Old Testament sacrificial system being training wheels for the people of God. That you would grow up in a household and your parents would teach you 
about what it takes to restore the relationship with God. For you to be back in a right relationship with God, what does it take? It takes a substitute. It takes a sacrifice. It takes blood. You cannot go into God just any old way. You need a substitute. You need a substitute. For hundreds of years, God is training His people for the very moment that Jesus Christ arrives on the scene. You know, we look at the cross of Christ, and it is a victory, and we see it as a victory because we know the end of the story, but imagine that if you were standing at the foot of the cross, and you saw what happened to Jesus, beaten, scourged, abandoned, shamed, dying the death of a common criminal. What do you think is happening that God has abandoned Jesus? It's a total defeat. That's why the disciples run away. That's why almost everybody, except for a few brave people that are still there, John apparently, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, except for a few people, everybody's scattered because the movement is dead. But that's not what happens, is it? It is a defeat. But it's a defeat for the evil one. It's a defeat for Satan. Satan and the serpent in the garden had deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve. and said, oh, come on, God's just trying to keep you from having fun. Go your own way. And then the consequences are what we deal with all the time. But God has achieved the victory. Through Jesus' death on the cross. But let me tell you what. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? That's what Paul says. This thing that happens, man, the, an unbelieving world looks at it and says, how can you believe in such stuff? But we know the rest of the story. So the reason I asked you to turn to um, uh, Psalm 22 uh, is this. The people of God over the centuries had been steeped uh, in the knowledge that you need a Savior. You need a substitute. You need a substitute sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Uh, The shedding of blood of bulls and goats and everything can't really take away sin. Get ready, get ready, get ready. And then Jesus comes along. And the most quoted passage at the cross of Jesus Christ, and you'll see it in the other Gospels as well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and not just here in John, is Psalm 22. Uh, And it's a psalm of David. Uh, David was in a lot of trouble uh, in his life, right? Even as he'd been anointed king, there were still people who sought his life to kill him, you know, like King Saul. I did not like that David was anointed. There were still, that David still had enemies. Um, and, and David wrote several psalms, uh, and, and they're beautiful, and, they're, and he talks about being on the run from his enemies and things like that. Psalm 22 is, is different and weird. If you read Psalm 22, it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sound familiar? It's not here in our text in John chapter 19, but it's in the other Gospels where Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? The people around him think, hey, wait a minute. Did he just say Elijah? He's calling Elijah. Let's wait and see if that's not what he said. He wasn't calling Elijah. He was saying, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct reference to Psalm 22. If you go back to Psalm 22 and you read it, uh, it talks about uh, that the person, uh, the main character in Psalm 22 is being persecuted. And not just persecuted, because David was persecuted in his life, but it's a public spectacle, and in fact, it's an execution. That in Psalm 22, the psalmist talks about that they pierced my hands and feet. Well, when did David get his hands and feet pierced? Never. Never. Uh, it talks about how they cast lots for my clothing. You know, when somebody casts lots for your clothing, I just want you to know that you've met your end. Okay? So this is your final will and testament, and you got nothing left, and they're literally casting lots for what's left of you, which is like four things, right? So when did that happen to David? It never happened. The public execution. It says, you know what? They're, they're mocking me. They're scorning me. They're taking my stuff. My God has abandoned me. When did that happen to David? It, it didn't. The mystery is that what is happening to Jesus was predicted by David. And, and, and Paul and Peter would say this later, that you know what? What David was saying, what David was seeing was Jesus. Isn't that weird? And kind of cool, right? The, I don't want to say David didn't know what he was talking about, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, David wrote, sang, Psalm 22 about what was going to happen to Jesus at the cross. This was the end. This was a public spectacle. And the words of Jesus on the cross were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A couple of things we need to know about that. Remember at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, what happened was that our first parents turned their backs on God and said, we're going to go our own way. And ushered into our existence this broken relationship with God. And the way that our relationship with God is restored, the way that we're reconciled to God, is that on the cross, as Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus is the sacrifice once for all, that on the cross, the Holy God turns his back on the Son. Because at that moment, on the cross, Jesus was bearing our sins, and God cannot be in the presence of sin. That God punished Jesus for us. That's what's happening at the cross. This is the way. This is the one. This is the only way to be restored to a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, His finished work on the cross. But while it looks like a defeat for Jesus, what's really interesting is what He says. He doesn't say, in all His anguish, He doesn't say, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my tunic, my tunic. He doesn't say any of that. He says, my God, my God, which is covenant language. Jesus, too, knew what He was enduring for our sakes. He knew that He was going to lose the face of God for a time 
to pay the penalty for us. But he also knew that God had promised that he would rise from the dead. Jesus knew that. And that's why he can say, my God, my God. Here's what I want you to take from that. There are times, if you're a believer, okay, uh, if you've lived any amount of time as a believer, you know that there are times where you pray to God and you are met with absolute silence, right? Or even a no. I think a no is better than silence. The worst is silence. But either way, as a child of God, you are sometimes met with a no or with silence. But what you have to remember is you look at the cross and you go, wait a minute. I know that this is my God. I know what He has done to prove His love to me. I know that He hasn't abandoned me. He may be silent. He may give me a no, but I know that He loves me. I know that I'm a child of God still because of God's covenant promises to me. That's great encouragement. You know, I think we live a lot of our lives with just, just doubt that God is real, that God really hears us and stuff. And you look to the cross of Christ and you're reminded of God's great love for you. So great is His love for you that He would do this to His own Son, Jesus. He would turn His back on Jesus for you. He hasn't forgotten you. You're still His child. Here's the thing. For those who are, I think, wrestling with how serious our sin problem is, uh, and, and believe me, I've been there. I, I was there. I was not a Christian growing up. Uh, I, I lived a, a, a terrible life for a lot of years, uh, more than I care to recall. But for those who are struggling with what a big deal we make out of sin and the cross and all this kind of stuff, let, let me just say a few words to you too. It is typical for those, uh, I, I, let me just say of us, to minimize sin and our broken relationship with God. Uh, and we do that in a couple of ways. Sometimes we just go, we look around us and we go, you know what? I mean, I don't cheat on my wife. I don't cheat on my taxes. I go to church every Sunday. I'm not that bad, right? We do that. And what we do is we minimize our sin as if Jesus Christ didn't really have to go to the cross because of that. So sometimes we minimize our sin. Um, other times, I think, as those struggling to believe the message, uh, we forget what it really costs. One of the challenges, I remember this very clearly as a, as a young person struggling with the gospel message that I heard, but, but committing to Jesus Christ was, if it's true, if this is true, that Jesus Christ really lived a life of sinless perfection, and sacrificed himself as the atoning sacrifice for me, if this is really true, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus and I'm reconciled to God, then there is nothing that God cannot ask of me. And I didn't want that. He's going to make me sacrifice, right? He's going to make me change some things. And I wasn't willing to do that. So I think that's a lot of the struggle for some people to go, if I believe in this, I'm afraid of what God is going to ask of me. Okay, I think you're right. You're right, there's nothing that God can't ask you because He's given everything for you on your behalf in Jesus. Uh, uh, let me end with this too. Uh, I, knew I shouldn't have set my timer. It's 35 minutes in case you're wondering. Um, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, I think what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to ask if the ushers would begin to prepare 
to distribute the elements of communion. Because I think this is, this is where this is going. It really ties into our going to the Lord's table to see His body and blood given for us to assure us, if we're believers, to assure us that God is our Father, that we're sons and daughters of the King. He hasn't abandoned us in any way. But also, uh, if you're not yet there, uh, if you haven't yet come to a point of committing your life to Jesus Christ, I also want you to observe what is going on here. That we're not re-sacrificing Jesus, uh, and we're not just remembering But by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we are truly, but spiritually, feeding on Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, I want you to hear me say that. That this is real history. Really happened by a real God who really loves us. And we actively participate in this each and every week that we take the Lord's Supper. But I want you to know, if you're not yet at that place of commitment, then this is not yet a meal for you. But I would encourage you to talk to a Christian friend, to talk to a Christian family member, talk to one of the members uh, of the church here, one of the pastors here, to talk about taking that step and committing your life to Jesus Christ. So, um, the cross is the central event uh, in all of history and in all of Scripture. And we're going to commemorate that uh, and we're going to participate in that today. So let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll distribute the elements. Is that right, Mike? Okay. Uh, Thanks for your time and attention. Don't tell Adam, uh, sorry, it's not really 37 minutes, it's uh, 15 minutes uh, since he's listened online. Thanks for your time and attention. Uh, If you have any questions uh, about this, please talk to a friend, um, and I hope that you'll be encouraged. So let me pray for us.